0: Okay, everybody, this is it. How's that for start a start of a show? This is it. That's not the name of the show. The name of the show is the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. You knew that if you tuned in here. But I'm Ed Krasnick, uh, your co-host, along with me, uh, someone who's actually licensed to talk about mental health. So that helps. And that's Jennifer Kalari. She'll be joining me shortly. And our guest today is an old friend who is an award-winning everything. I think she's won an award while we've been on so far. She's an Emmy-winning writer. She is an Emmy-nominated host for a show called While You Were Out. And she's written a book called Exploiting My Baby. And that's Teresa Strasser. Teresa Strasser joining us shortly. I still sound like I'm on AM radio in Bakersfield. I don't know why I have that tone. But this is a show where we not only talk about mental health with people from the world of entertainment, comics, writers, uh, everybody, musicians, but we also practice mental health skills because mental health is a practice. It's not rocket science. It's everyday life. There are things that you can do so easy, so simple, but we're just not used to practicing. We think it's automatic. We We think we just have mental health and the idea is that we don't. We know that now, because if you've looked at the news lately, you know that people don't automatically have mental health. In fact, very few people have it. First of all, I want to talk about virtual therapy, because we're living in a time where people are are seeing their therapists. If you are, you're seeing them virtually and, and what that's all about and, you know, what kind of an impact that has, you know, not being in person. Maybe it's a better thing. I don't know. The other thing is, why do people never feel like they have time for it? Ment- like they don't have time to meditate. They don't have time to practice anything. It seems like a luxury. It still seems like a luxury. Why is that? Even now that we're at home, we'll talk about some of the big, biggest mental health obstacles uh, that are happening today in today's world. And we'll, we'll talk about the brain. We'll talk about different skills that you can use. Here's a quick little guide to virtual therapy, how to pick the right therapist for you Virtually. If you hear a flushing sound, that's not good for virtual therapy. That's not the kind of therapist that you should use. If they have the real housewives of Atlanta on in the background, not a good thing for therapists. If they have a parrot who keeps saying the words, I'm not the problem, you're the fucking problem, Steve, that's not a good idea to be in therapy with that person. If their virtual background is a mugshot from when they did time in Yuma, not a good sign and if they say how does that make you feel off-camera when you mention a Netflix show that you enjoy not a good person to be in therapy with now very quickly this is new for the holidays this is brand new now Oprah her super soul Sundays they have a lot of merch now that they sell and one of their biggest sellers right now this is brand new is their celebrity guru GPS series it's the voices of different... <laughs> you can have Dr. Phil. The one we like is the Eckhart Tolle GPS. And uh, we have a, a little sample of that uh, for you. Here's the Eckhart Tolle GPS.
1: This is Eckhart Tolle. Welcome to GPS navigation. Of the soul. I just rhymed. You must remain in the present moment. It is essential for true life. It is who you really are. It is your birthright. If you would like to receive the worry-free version, it's a premium version, and you must pay extra. But, believe me, It is worth it. You'll still have your worries, your concerns, but you will also hear my voice again and again, reminding you that this is the present moment. In 500 feet, make a left. Even though you are stuck behind the car that is on vacation from Florida, it is stopping you from picking up your dry cleaning on time, stay in the present moment. I'm still with you. You still have your worries because you don't have the premium version, and a very angry man just passed you by. There's nothing you can do. He is not living in the present moment.
0: Now, to get certain answers, like where you're going in life, it's a premium version and there'll be an additional cost. Okay, let's bring Jennifer in. And Jennifer, virtual therapy, is it something that you do? And what have you noticed? Like, how does it change the whole dynamic of therapy?
2: it's interesting because I've been doing virtual therapy for years before the pandemic. Like I was already fully online before it even became something I had to do because I have clients from all over the world. And because I think it has to do with being genuine and it has to do with connection and true empathy and true caring that transcends. So I actually feel just as close to the clients that I'm working with that I've never actually physically met in person than the ones that I used to see in my office. So, um, it's it's different, but I think it's every bit as effective.
0: Is that something that you learned how to do? Is it was there a learning curve? Because I think a lot of therapists who haven't maybe done that are are finding out what you know what it's about and 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 how to because and I'll talk about that with our guests with Teresa Strasser. When the camera goes on, people stop being themselves. That's the natural instinct is to be more than you are.
2: You know, it's it, it's really interesting because it seemed like a very natural transition for me. I I didn't really find it. You know, what I did find is that it's exhausting. I mean, it, and kids are finding that when they're in school all day, you're you know, people are working online. There's there's a t- your eyes get tired, they get dry, more headaches. You you definitely have to get used to that. But I feel like because the relationship is so genuine, it's it doesn't really matter if it's on the phone, in person, or on uh, on camera with with Zoom. It seemed to be something that just kind of naturally. Worked well for me. So,
0: what do you think the impact of this is emotionally in terms of how that everybody's communicating virtually now? That most people aren't seeing each other, but they're seeing each other only through a screen.
2: Yeah. I mean, that part is hard, right? We miss actually hugging people and being physically able to connect in that way for sure with family members and and I, I certainly worry about teenagers and kids. They're I mean and there's nothing you can do. Parents are really struggling with this, but kids are online uh, often going to school online, doing their homework online and then relaxing online, so there's there's a lot of screens for kids and that concerns me. Although I will say through the pandemic I've noticed teenagers in particular they're actually talking to each other more. So where it used to just be, you know, quick snapchats and and brief conversations they're actually talking to each other which which is a good thing and wasn't happening before you feel like these practices that we
0: talk about on the show that that it's just like i have a lot to do and it's too it t- it's going to take too much time i don't have the time to slow mm-hmm. down even mm-hmm. when we're at home and we're not we're not you know it's a pandemic we're at home there's you should have sure. more time but there's something in the brain that says I don't have time
2: for this. My answer is you don't have time not to, right? If you have time to worry and stress and ruminate and focus on what's not working in your life, then you have time to do the things that are going to help that. And that's the truth. How do
0: you teach people different practices? Like, What could they do to, to talk to that
2: voice that says, I don't have time for this now. I have to do X. Right, well, a part of it is just to be aware, right? and we we talk about that often that just having that just being able to observe yourself and ask yourself, what is this about? Am I running from something? Am I really this busy? How are my priorities? You know, what am I spending my time on? Just even ask yourself those questions can pull you into a different place where you're starting to think about yourself and care for yourself. And then the other piece is just really thinking about what it what is it that we're actually focusing our attention on, and it's usually what we don't want, what we don't like. Uh, what we have to do, we're sort of in a race with with time around all the things that we have to do. I've got to do this, and then I've got to do that, and then I never have time for this, and I never have time. That dialogue in our head sets the tone for our body. It's psychoneurobiology. It actually sets the tone. The, the, the chemicals that, that release in our body respond to what we're thinking about. And so if we're constantly negative, and we're constantly complaining, and we're constantly focusing on what isn't working, um, our body's going to tune into that and sync with that. It's going to resonate with that.
0: Sure. Sure. And you've said this before, but you, you, your brain tags certain things. So mm-hmm. if you give it a message, now it's filing, it's tagging. And if it's something that, that actually is life enhancing and actually is, is, is a positive thing, then it tags that. Then you're orienting yourself in a, in a different way.
2: Exactly. You're just sort of pulling from reality what you're going to pay attention to. So if your tagline when you wake up in the morning is, I've never have time for anything, then you've now tagged that as a significant thing. And your brain is going to search the entire day and find all of the things and all of the times where you haven't had time to do something. And it's going to further prove, oh, see, I knew it. See, I knew I was going to have a day like this. You know, and that's kind of how it works.
0: Yeah, a lot of this culture, a lot of the consumer, you know, culture in America is about lack it's all geared mm-hmm. towards lack. It's what I don't mm-hmm. have, but I have yeah. to get. I don't have yeah. enough money to get this thing. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. The, we're, the media, you know, we, we're told that we don't have enough. And the yeah. thing is, what we're learning is, especially the pandemic has pointed us toward this. If you have a roof over your head and you have food and you have relative good health, you're not sick, you have enough. There's a lot to talk about there in terms of being, being grateful. What, what is a way that you teach, teach kids to be grateful in your practice or teach them how to practice being grateful?
2: The brain is tricky. So if you're, if you're in a miserable mood or you're really stressed out or you're really sad and then somebody says, well, you know, why don't you just think about all the good things you have? Then you just feel guilty. Like I have all these good things and I'm unhappy. So if, if someone is is really upset, that's actually not going to help. So I usually just teach people, not just kids, to find one thought, one thing that's slightly better than the thought they were just thinking, right? Because if, if you try to go all the way to, oh I'm so lucky and I have so much and I really do have enough, if your brain doesn't believe that, it's not going to work or you're just going to feel guilty at the same time. So it's really about just looking around and finding one thing, one tiny, it could be as small as my sweatshirt is really soft or the temperature is nice in the room or my coffee mix turned out okay. Like the smallest thing so that it doesn't alert the anxiety and the negativity, just, just a little bit better than the thought before that. And then you kind of resonate with that thought. And then you find another thought that's slightly better than that thought. And you sort of climb your way up and out of a negative space. And it takes practice. This is not easy. And when you jump too high and your brain goes, What are you doing being happy? You have no business being happy. All these things are wrong in your life. Then you go back down a few rungs and you start again. And the more that you're able to do this, which sometimes means even just thinking about something completely neutral or something completely else, you know, so- something else completely, even for a few seconds. And it's constantly being aware of what you're thinking. And actually having an impact on the kinds of thoughts that you are letting race around in your head. And the more you do this, the better you get at it. And the better you get at it, the happier you are.
0: The number one thing is just to Mm -hmm. be aware. Just to be aware. And even if it's something that you're aware of that doesn't feel good that you do over and over again, the fact that you can call Mm -hmm. it out is going to help you make choices in the future about it. Right now, all you have to do is call it out. I remember that I used to have a habit that, uh, you know... I I had a habit of isolation and I would go away for long periods of time, wouldn't tell anybody. And it was because I didn't I would get numb. Uh, I didn't know that that you could have feelings. (laughs) So so I really would get numb and then I was ashamed. And so I wouldn't let anybody know where I was and I wouldn't answer the phone. Right. So that's just how I coped.
2: A lot of people cope that way, Ed. Like that sort of paralysis and that just avoidance. And you know, yeah. the phone calls are piling up and the emails are piling up, and you know you should answer them, and you feel guilty that you haven't answered them, so you don't want to face them, so you stay in that in that place. But the calling out, how you call out, is really important because if you call yourself out like this, you idiot, you know better than this, and here I am doing this again, then that's not going to help anything. If you gently, with love and some compassion for yourself, go, okay, well you know what? That's interesting. Here, I, here, I'm, here I'm doing this again. You know, I must be in such a space. This is one of the ways I cope when I'm in pain, right? To be kind to yourself when you call it out is also really, really important.
0: For me, the, what broke it is I actually told somebody what I was mm-hmm. doing. I told a friend that I was hiding yeah. and that changed everything. Yeah. That, that started to change the <laughs> dynamic and that was the road back. And that leads to the, the beautiful neurotic that I am today. <laughs> I'm just a regular neurotic before I used to be a champion. I want to bring in our guest, uh, waiting patiently. You know, an old friend. I always admired her. Very talented, like multi-talented in a, in a great way. She wrote a book called "Exploiting My Baby Because It's Exploiting Me," and of course, it becomes because she's such a great writer. It becomes a an, a an LA Times bestseller. becomes a book that was optioned by Sony and developed into a pilot, but for ABC. Then she's a journalist, so she writes uh, columns for all kinds of places, including the LA Times. And I remember reading one years ago, and it always stuck with me. She's a very talented writer. And she also is uh, the co-host, have known her, audiences know her as the co-host on The Adam Carolla Show. And then she goes on to to host shows on television, uh, shows like While You Were Out, many other shows and be uh, an on-camera personality. So um, I don't feel as that great about myself when I talk about her accomplishments, but that's okay. That's for me and my maker. But right now, here is Teresa Strasser. Teresa, thanks for coming on and uh, so great to connect with you.
3: Thank you so much for having me. And I, I don't know if you remember this, but um, I I've always found it interesting that what for me might be a seminal moment that I'll never forget might be for the other person or people involved, something they don't even remember. So I don't even know if you remember a time that we were chatting for a few minutes outside of an open mic at a bookstore in Santa Monica. Does this bring back memories? Yes. Okay. Do you remember the conversation? Like, do you, do you remember the nature of the conversation?
0: I don't know. Was it, was it about – because you were doing stand-up. Was it about some TV things or
3: – Okay. So at the time, I was working for a pyramid scheme, a.k.a. <laughs> <laughs> a multi-level marketing. But I was working – I was a temp. It was the most bizarre – like I, I moved to LA and, and the one mentor I had said, whatever you do, don't wait tables because you'll make friends and then you'll become – a waitress, and that'll be your identity. So I don't want you to ever work in any restaurant or catering service. Find another way to make a living. So you know, I, I had a degree in journalism. So I I found an agency, and it was a temp agency for writers, like a rent-a-writer. And I ended up working for. And I hope um, if, if, if what what should we call Herbalife, <laughs> so they don't sue me? Uh,
0: the, a, a, an interesting place, a lot of vitamins and shampoos.
3: I got it uh, like a one week placement at the corporate um the, the corporate headquarters of um not herbalife and um so i i they just they needed someone to write and they had these publications that they're god what are the people I can't even remember now they're they're they were very careful about their terminology, so they had magazines with before and after weight loss stories, and I was so good at writing their um propaganda. <laughs> that I I I like I like was just a temp for a week and then they kept me another week and then they kept me six months and I ended up being there a year. And when I ran into you in front of that bookstore in Santa Monica, was, I had probably been there like six months and I was trying to explain to you what I was doing. So I was like naming, because they had makeup. I was naming lipstick, naming perfumes. I was writing these before and after stories. And I was telling you they had um, a lot of rules about language, i.e., You could never call the weight loss pills, pills. You had to call them tablets. (laughs) And obviously like in my interview to get the job, she was like, have you heard of Herbalife? And I go, yeah, it's like a pyramid scheme. (laughs) And that's when I realized like you don't ever, and she's like, no, it's an MLM, multi-level marketing. So I was explaining to you, um, oh, by the way, you can't say, uh, weight loss. you can't say diet, obviously, you say weight management. Mm-hmm. So, I was telling you about all this, and then I was that I was the one who was writing a lot of the um, a lot of this <laughs> propaganda. I'm 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 like the Lenny Riefenstahl of, <laughs> of, of, of pyramid schemes, and then I said triumph of the pills. Oh, by the way, you have to like have it's like sort of relatively deep Nazi knowledge to even get that. But you said, wow, the way your brain works, you should meet, um, you should meet my boss at Win Ben Stein's Money, which is where you worked at Comedy Central. You got me an interview. I got the job. It was a huge, huge break for me that you opened that door for me and super generous. So uh, thank you.
0: Well, you know, you you could tell right away that you know we were experiencing something there. That was a very unusual uh, show. Everybody had their own hours, but they had a quota. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you got your quota, which meant that you had to write a certain amount of material and then get it approved by the head writer, who would ring a hotel desk clerk uh, bell on his desk. He would ring it if he thought it was a good thing. He was such a great guy. Terry Terry McDonald, amazing guy. So smart and so funny. But anyway, he knew this world. He knew Jeopardy, the Jeopardy world, and he knew the game show world, and he was so good at it. So you'd have to pass it by him. And then you would go to his desk and you'd say, hey, Terry, I've got this thing. And you'd show him the category that you wrote and that you researched it. He would either ring the bell or he would go, Jesus, no way. (laughs) Um, and so that those um, are the two react Jesus.
3: We used to call that the Nobel Prize.
0: <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> the Nobel Prize. Now, Win Bedsides Money was a, was a, you know, it, we won the Emmy Award for it. It was ridiculous. Um, it was titles, and it was a show where Ben Stein would play against the uh, contestants that he was, you know, the idea was he's wagering his money. You couldn't meet him. His co-host was Jimmy Kimmel. It was a very unusual show, but your mind, you know, your mind either works that way or it doesn't work that way, but you're a really great writer and you did so well there. And then Michael Davies, right? Then Who Wants to Be a Millionaire?
3: Yeah, yeah I worked on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire with with the great Regis. May he rest in peace. But you made
0: this transition to, you know, to uh, working with Adam Carolla and then on camera hosting you know with while you were out and 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 many other shows i was going to ask you it's really hard to do that job people don't understand how hard it is to do that job and i think what's particularly challenging about it you have to have a certain kind of energy you have to service the show it's very hard to be yourself when you're on camera hosting in tv so my question to you and you're really good at it so my question to you is how do you do it how were you able to to get into that and keep yourself, you know, authentic while you're hosting these kind of formats.
3: Well, thank you for the compliment. It, it is really hard. I mean, you take it for granted, like a, a guy like Ryan Seacrest, for example, like perhaps doesn't get his due. He is really good at hosting yeah, anything. So like he is very, very natural, very smooth, and If you remember, he had like a short-lived live daytime talk show for a second. Yes. And I was a correspondent on that show. And so I'd be like standing by somewhere live in New York City to like knock on someone's door and tell them they just won tickets to see J-Lo. And I'd have him in my ear and he was so calm. And I remember he said, "Uh, Teresa, I'm – uh, I'm about to go to you live when we come back and I'm not going to talk to you a lot because it's going to be loud and you're not going to be able, you know, I think we surprised somebody at a diner. He's like, you're going to be, it's going to be loud. You're going to like run out of cable, um, which is the cord tethering someone to a camera in a live shot. Um, so I'm not going to talk to you a lot. So you just keep talking and I'll wrap you like just fully technically understanding the challenge that I was about to have. And he was right. I couldn't hear him. It was loud. So I knew to just keep talking. And um, I, I've always been impressed because the guy that you – like, it's just one guy. And I will say people ask me what Adam Carolla is like. There's one guy. That's Adam. Like, when when he is walking to the bathroom during a commercial break talking to you, it's the same as when he's on the air. Um, Dr. Drew is like that too. So I feel like the people that I've worked with that I, I think are um, – like they're sort of like the easiest to watch or to listen to. It's because there's there's like an integrated, per, like there's not like this is me hosting. Sometimes I feel like I'm actually pretty bad, and and it's very situational for me depending on the show and the environment. Like while you were out was um, produced by the BBC, and they really wanted it to be verité, and they would shoot twelve hours a day. So you kind of like can't be a phony. It's just it's 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 it's, it's a marathon. You can only be phony in a sprint. But um, so like eventually everyone just broke down and was just, this is how I am. But I've also done shows where I'm reading off a prompter or like maybe I'm not comfortable. And um, you know, it's interesting because I, my dad lives here in Phoenix where I live and um, I see him a lot and um, you know, he's lived a lot longer and um, he's said to me many times, like the hardest thing About being a human being is to be yourself. And it's one of the reasons he doesn't love being around a lot of people or being in big groups because it becomes exponentially more difficult to be yourself. So, yeah, it's a trick of hosting, but it's a trick of life. And I've always thought when you get that advice, like, just be yourself. What the, like, oh, is there (laughs) square? Yeah, no, it's
0: fine. You can go ahead. Yeah.
3: Like, be myself is such a fucking fluid concept. What self do you want me to be? Like, there's a self that I am with my kids. There's a self that I am with other moms. There's a self that I am when I'm really comfortable and I'm, I you know, I'm just with my dad or with, or with my husband. Um, there's a self that I am if I – back in the day when you used to have um, auditions and you walk into a room and there's eight people in there or ten people – And, um, you know, you're, you're that self. There's a self that I am around people from my own culture. Like if I'm with a bunch of Jews and it's like Sunday school pickup or something, I'm a little bit different in that environment. I don't know if those are all me or I don't know. It's, I put, have, I put to be yourself up there with, have fun with it. What the fuck's that? (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is an interesting thing. And so you're saying that,
0: accepting that you have different sides and different things doesn't make you a schizophrenic. It actually makes you a human being.
3: Yeah. I, I would think that, I mean, and, and Jennifer could probably speak to this, but there's probably like a healthy human psyche understands context and that even a kid will be one way at school and one way, you know, with just their peers and one way at baseball practice. And, and those are all versions of, of themselves. I, I find like, there's definitely a feeling that when you, I, I, <clears throat> I, have this as like a social hangover cause I'm not great in groups and sometimes I'll come home or the next day I'll feel so bad and I'll feel like, like a shame over, like I wasn't myself. I was trying too hard. And, and like, I, if I, if I skip a day or two meditating, it happens more. Like if I'm not, um, like if I'm just not present, then I'll slip into some mode where I'm just trying to impress people. And then I feel so bad the next day. Like I'll think of things I said that were stupid or braggy and I'll just be kicking myself. And I I guess that's a lifelong process because my dad is 77 and he still does it.
0: Yeah. What do you think about that, Jennifer, in terms of efforting,
2: try, trying, trying? At, Teresa, you just said it, actually. This, this is actually how you do it. For, first of all, it, it is very fluid. We are different aspects of ourselves with different people. And sometimes and, and there's appropriate times to be you know, different versions of yourself. So to think that you have to be one way in every situation is exhausting and not actually possible. But what's really important about what you just said, Teresa, is that when, you're, when you have what's called heart-brain coherence, when, when you're in a place where you know you are being true to whoever you need to be in that moment... Uh, And you're in agreement with yourself, I call it the compass facing north, then you're going to leave that situation and feel great, right? But if you were braggy, or you got nervous, or you made a joke that wasn't nice, because you were anxious, or whenever we're operating from a place of fear, it's going to take us in a different direction. When we're operating from a place of love, I respect myself in this situation. I don't need to say anything that I don't want to say right now because I'm feeling pretty good. Then you're not going to have that hangover. And that takes time and that takes work. And it also takes a little bit of healthy shame, right? That's not always the worst thing in the world. If you leave a party and think, oh, I really don't like who I was in that moment. I don't like that feeling of not being true. To who I am I really kind of ripped myself off there I don't I don't feel good about who I was in that moment that's what's known as healthy shame. I'm out of sync I'm out of harmony with who I want to be and the kind of person I want to be now it becomes toxic shame if you won't get out of bed and you're mad at yourself and you won't go to a party again that's toxic shame and that's different but healthy shame is actually there to guide you it's actually there to give you information you know I didn't like behaving that way at that party so when I go to a party the next time, I'm going to remember that, and I'm going to remember that took me too far off course from who I really want to be, and I'm going to pay attention to that feeling when I'm at the party, and I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay lined up with who I really want to be. And the more we tune in, you see, this, this comes up a lot when we, when we talk about feelings on the show, but everyone thinks that feelings are bad. They're not. <laughs> they're, they're a GPS system. They're teaching us what works and what doesn't work in any given situation. And so if you run from those feelings, they're going to chase you. They're information. So if you learn to tune in, oh, I don't like the feeling in my stomach when I just made that statement or why did I tell that story? Why did I just say what I, you know, that I just did that? That didn't seem right to me. Pay attention to how it feels in your body and there'll be a little Icky, kind of sick feeling. We all know it, right? If we, I don't know, let, gossip is a good example of this, right? If we're gossiping, right? And it just, there's a part of it that just feels like, oh, it's a little gross, but it's kind of fun. But then there's this gross feeling, right? So if you start to pay attention to that gross feeling as the way that your body is talking to you, change how you talk and that gross feeling goes away. Now you're using that uh, like an, you're literally using your brain and your, um, Feelings like an instrument, right? And there'll be situations where you know it's not so negative to make a joke, and that the context is okay, and it's fine. But if you if you have that icky feeling, listen to it. It's telling you something, and it's pulling you out of harmony with who you are, and then you're going to have that social hangover.
0: Well, there's something that we can that, that also that you can use. That, that we don't think that, you know, I never think that I can use this. I'm starting to do it a little bit more, but I'm already 100 years old. Stopping. hmm Pausing. Stop it. Just take a break. Take a break. Yep. I'm in the middle of a conversation. You know what? I'm just need a, I just need a minute. I'm going to take a break.
2: That's okay. It's okay to take a second. And you've got to use the feelings in your body to tell you when you need that second. I love people who
3: can do that. Um, you just reminded me two things. I've had a long time therapist. She's in San Francisco, where I grew up. That's mm. how long I've known her. And we were talking on the phone. So as you said, I was already sort of set up for mm-hmm. pandemic therapy because I was just, mm-hmm. just doing a phoner. But at one point, you know, I would I'd have so much anxiety, especially performance anxiety. I once literally got out of a moving car on my way to um, like a performance. I I was so nervous that I, my body was like, you know what? I'm going to risk it. And I just opened the door oh, and started to sure. get out. Uh, Mike, you, you might know Mike Gandolfi. He was driving yes, me. Yes,
0: sure. Great comedian.
3: Great. And I had given him, a, he knew all all about it. And I had given him this <laughs> book. I think it's called Stop Obsessing. And I had like, a page i had an index card shoved in the page and it had like a bunch of gosh i don't know if they're affirmations or whatever but he had to pull over the car and he got out the book and it was like this feels threatening and urgent but it's not this feels life or death mm-hmm. but it's not the therapist that gave me that book and and helped me with that she used to just tell me sometimes just picture a stop sure. sign in your mind like literally a red stop sign yep. what is that a hexagon with the white letters and just see it and sometimes it's just that basic for me it's just like stop it's like the the snap out of it it's like shares just slapping you across the face moonstruck style, yeah. moonstruck style. sometimes that's the thing i i heard an interview with um the actress that's on better call Saul. i think her name is ray i forget do you watch that show
0: I used to I don't watch I know Bob, but uh yeah, I gotta get back Peter Gould, great, the most amazing character, the most amazing show, yeah,
3: she's a phenomenal actress and and um i heard heard an interview and she was talking about her um first like the first big television job she got, and she just didn't know any better, she sort of didn't know how things worked, and so she was at this big network test, and she was a very serious like theater actress and she started and like two minutes into it, it just wasn't good. And so she just said, you know what? Yeah, this isn't working for me. And she just started over. That's awesome. Those
0: things are available to all of us every time, every moment. But you have to like be able to answer, like Jennifer's saying, you have to be able to be aware of what you're feeling and actually be aware of it. You can't push it down and right. go on. You have to stop and say, Oh. There's a lot of fear coming up right now.
2: So if it's too scary to do it on stage or in a job interview or in some, you know, intense situation, just practice with your family. Just pay attention to when you're getting that little feeling and you're like, oh, there it is. And I'm going to pause and I'm going to correct it. And sometimes like the, the example you were just giving of just, you know what, this, this sucks. I'm going to stop. I want to do it again. There's so much confidence and strength in that sometimes. That's so much better than just babbling along and, and um, getting deeper and deeper into the mess, right? Is to just own it. There's so much confidence in that. And we're so afraid sometimes to make mistakes, but to just call ourselves out and go, yeah, you know what? Didn't like where that was going. Let's go this way now. Um, is so much more, I don't know, comforting and commanding in some ways, but it takes practice. So to try to practice it in, in smaller situations, right? And then you'll have that those neuropathways when you need them, and then and then, I don't know you're going to say something, but Teresa, you were also talking about a stop sign. Those images are actually really important because the midbrain, whose job it is, is to just, you know, it's basically a survival mechanism of the brain. Am I in danger? Is this an emergency? And it thinks in metaphors and pictures. It doesn't think in words. Only your frontal lobe thinks in words, right? So that's why stop sign is a great idea. Or I don't know, any other image that implies like stop right now can work really well
0: you can make a whole bunch of images of things that work for you. For me, the the ocean is a real calming, like as soon as I think of the ocean or Bob Barker, oddly (laughs) enough, Um, but but because I feel like I'm going to win something. I think that there are so many stories, like everybody who's listening, you all have millions of stories and some of them are just when you're with yourself. You don't have to be around other people to have these things come up. They come up all Mm -hmm. the time. And so there's, there's choices. There's, why not have an arsenal of, you know, highway signs or traffic signs about emotional traffic? How about that? that. I mean, we'll do, you know, how about the emotional trap? Well, maybe we'll do it. Maybe, maybe (laughs) it'll be on our website. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Caution, passive aggressive people (laughs) ahead. (laughs) Teresa, I wanted to, I wanted to also ask you, so you you know, you wrote, you you've written so much. You wrote this book, Exploiting My Baby, you know, because they're exploiting me. Now, now that was a while ago because your kids are growing up.
3: Yep. They, they are, uh, uh what are they? Eight and 11.
0: Eight and 11. So Je- Jennifer, you know, one of the things she does is connected parenting. And I thought maybe you could speak to, okay, that's when you wrote that book, you were at a certain place. Yes. Where are you now as a parent?
3: Ed, I'm so glad that you opened this door because I actually really want to ask Jennifer a question. And I'm glad that you're here because I think that you'll be helpful too. Um, it's, it's about uh, something that happened yesterday with my older kid who's 11. Like I'm still like, I can feel like some adrenaline still or kind of sped up or like I want to cry. Like, I don't know. I'm having a lot of, I'm in my feelings mm-hmm. as the kids say. And I I wanted to run it by you. So, so, and yeah, uh, by the way, working on another book and it's going to be very different, but, um, uh, I had long, (laughs) long time between, between books, but okay. So, um, by the way, the next, the book that I'm working on is about a season of baseball and the story that happened yesterday involves baseball, but the, the, the book I'm working on is about the season of little league that took place right after my brother died, my brother died. He was 47. Mm -hmm. He had cancer. And so just just after that, my, um, my dad and I went to, you know, 20 little league games. And that was, that was our grief group. It was like a very unofficial grief group because, um, like there's, there's something called male grief, which Jennifer Mm -hmm. probably knows all about, but sometimes it's not that easy, um, to, to talk. And my dad and I, we just, our grief group met on the sidelines of the Little League. And we, so it's kind of like oh, stories beautiful. about grief and, and parenting and all that. Yeah, it's been, it's, um, I've had some challenges actually sitting down to, to finish the proposal, but it's, it's just about done. But yesterday I had a baseball situation with my older kid. So he plays club baseball. He's pretty good. He's, uh, he, well, I'll say this. He's on a very competitive team. And it's the kids are very serious athletes. They play in tournaments, they play kids from other states. And, you know, it's it's like one of the few things you can sort of safe, you know, safely do during the pandemic. It's outdoors. There's limited people who can watch the games, the coaches wear masks, etc. So he, um, he's sort of new to this, I let him audition, as I like to call it, they call it trying out. (laughs) <laughs> they, call, they call rehearsals practice. <laughs> yeah. So I let him audition and now he gets to rehearse and perform with the team. He but again, he's new to this, and a lot of these kids have been playing very, very seriously for many years, even though they're so young. It's, it's a surprising new world. So yesterday, like it was just it was a really rough game. They were run-ruled. They um, it was sudden death tournament, so they they lost their game. Nate, my 11-year-old, like he did have a, a, like a beautiful play in right field where he had to like run and get under. Like it was, a, he made a, a really tough catch. So there was something positive, but he also ground out and struck out. So he didn't have a hit in the game and he struck out and, and they lost and it was a bad loss. So he gets in the car and it's just me. We, we took two separate cars. It's me and my dad and Nate. And I can see that, oh, my Aww. God, am I crying out? Oh, okay. It's, okay. Um, it's, oh, fine. Fine. it's okay. It's,
0: it's okay. 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 It's okay.
3: So I can see yeah. that his, his eyes are filled with tears. It's, um, I'm like really, I have two boys, and I'm like really trying to thread that needle where I want it to be okay for them to have feelings, and I never want them to be ashamed about being sad or crying. But sort of what we were talking about before Especially as boys get, you know, 11 and 12 and they're playing sports, like there's really a time and place. And I can see that there's a value in like learning like when it's not okay to cry. And like, um, for example, you know, Nate's a pitcher and like watching your kid pitch is very difficult for me because there's nothing you can do. They're up there alone and they're either like throwing strikes or they're not. I, it's hard to explain, but they call it PMS, pitcher's mom syndrome. Anyway, um, he got in the car, and I was like, "Okay." I felt like, "All right, this is this is your moment. Like, this is a big parenting moment. You cannot fuck this up. Like, you can't say the wrong thing. The right thing. Oh, my point was, I we've he's had they've had coaches that tell them like, you know, you've got to keep your no matter what you're feeling when you're pitching, you don't hang your head. And you don't show your body – like don't let your body language show that, you're, that you've are you lost your stuff or that you're losing. And like I totally get that because I see kids out there when they strike out and they smash the ground with their bat, like it's, it's not a good look. And I guess what I'm trying to figure out is like I understand that you have to learn how to like wrangle and wrestle with your feelings when you're an athlete and you're in the middle of the game. And also like because they're boys – I don't Like, I could see he did not want to cry after the game or in the dugout. And then when he got yeah. in the car and I said, like, how are you? And he said, he said, I, I wish oh, I played better. Aww. And I'm like, I know, but your catch was really beautiful. And I heard the coaches say that that was a major league play. And, you know, I see that you're getting better every game and that's all that matters. But I didn't like – and then I said – do you want my ear pods? Sometimes I like listening to music when I'm upset. Like I thought maybe he could just be in his own world. But then I could tell that he didn't want to cry and he didn't want to talk to me about it. And cause they know that I'm like, I'm from San Francisco and like had hippie parents. And I know that like, they're sick of me being like, let it out. If you cry, you let the sad feelings out. Like I can't tell he didn't want
2: that. Okay, so here's the thing. Like, if we try to parent in this way and we try to make every parenting moment perfect, you're gonna mess your kids up anyway. Okay, <laughs> like you, you have to be real, and life is full of all of these different moments. So as long as it's coming from this deep place of love, which I can hear that it is, that's why you want to cry when you tell the story. And when you're a parent and you watch your kid go through something like that, it's so painful for us. We we want to just take it away from them and feel it ourselves, so they don't have to feel it. So you can't get it wrong. As long as it's coming from a place of love, you can't get it wrong. But but here's a couple of things that we often do as parents. Kids don't necessarily need to let it out, exactly what you're saying. Like if he wanted to just keep it together and lose it in the privacy of his own room and not have to deal with anyone in that moment, then that's okay. And I'll, I'll help you get to a place where you can find that out. It is important to feel the feelings and let them out. But sometimes kids need a moment or we all need a moment to just collect ourselves and then, and then let it out. So it's not like a huge floodgate. Plus he might not have wanted to cry that much in front of his grandfather or whatever. But here's the thing that a lot of us do as parents. We, we want to make it better right away. And sometimes you just can't make it better. It just sucks. It just does. And that's a miserable feeling. And even though he had a really great play, it was really disappointing for him. And he was kind of feeling overwhelmed with that. Where we jump in is we, we start cheerleading. But honey, you did a really good job on this. And this went okay. And that went okay. And you want this? And you want that? That's where we all go, by the way. And that sometimes can have the impact that either the kid feels like, oh, I'm so upset that my parent can't actually deal with it. So I, I don't want to worry about her and me at the same time. Or it can feel invalidating. I don't care how well I did on that one play. I'm really upset. The tough part is being able to sit in your, child, in, in your child's sadness and just be sad with them, right? And not rescue. And so that's where me, I teach a technique called the calm technique, where you learn to just use language to meet the person, not just your child, whoever you're talking to, right where they are and use that language to really validate and attune to how they're feeling, and just be in that moment. Like, you know what? I, I think you did a great play, but God, that must have sucked. I can see how disappointed you are. Like, don't be afraid to just be where he is in that moment. And that's okay. But the truth is you can always repair. So it, first of all, it doesn't I sound like you did a lovely job, first of all. But you can always go back an hour later a day later and say, hey, you know what? I didn't really love the way I handled that. I went right to, you know, why don't you cheer yourself up? Or why don't you wear these ear pods or whatever it is? And what I really think I should have done is just sat there with you because that sucked and that didn't feel good. Like, just be, don't be afraid to be there in that moment with with him. So Teresa, what part did you think you didn't do a good job on? What didn't feel right for you?
3: Well, you you just went right to it. I think I knew when I was saying, but you made that amazing play. That I somehow wasn't, it was invalidating, but I didn't want to say, gosh, that's so disappointing because I was scared to communicate that like, this is only fun for us
2: when you win. So you, so the way that you do it. So what did he say when you got in the car? What did he say? What were his, what was his sentence? You said, I wish I played better. I wish I played better. So then that's, that's the sentence you use. And you say, it doesn't matter how I think you played. I think you made a really good play, but the point is you felt like you didn't play the way you wanted to play. And that's the part that sucks for you. And that's hard, baby. Like something like that. So it's, you don't think he played badly, but he does. And so that's where you need to start. And listen, if we can't get it in the moment, you can go back later. You could say, you know what? That day in the car, when you got in the car and you were really disappointed about how you played. And I just went on and on about how well you played. I think that might've felt like, I wasn't really with you in that moment that I just tried to cheer you up too fast. And I respect you and I believe in you and I know you can handle your feelings. And sometimes you just want to feel bad. And I didn't mean to yank you out of it so fast. That's the beautiful part about um, using this technique, the calm technique later is you can come up with the sentence after you've sat and thought about it and you've got yourself under control Right, you get your own feelings out of control, under control, and then you go back and and you do it. And it, here's the thing: as long as it's coming from a place of love, it's okay. It's okay. He's learning all kinds of things in those moments, and he's learning just as much from being miserable about he, how he played than if he would played really well.
3: I tell myself that, but like that, I think that's why, like having um a baseball playing kid is, is mm-hmm. interesting as, as a metaphor, because yep. like my, my dad will often say to me, like, you can't protect your kids from pain, which is something he understands on a, on a deeper level than, yeah. than, than I can. Um, yeah. but like on this little tiny baby level of like, oh, your kid struck out, but there's still this, there's still this, it's, it's a microcosm of this feeling mm. of like, you, you will, I won't be able to um, protect you.
2: Yeah. So, but here's what you can do because your dad's right. You can't. Um, you, and in fact, what you want to be able to do is give your kids the tools and the emotional resilience to handle life when it happens, because life always happens. What you can teach him is, is you can't control circumstances really ever about anything very much, but you can always control your emotional response to the circumstances right? And if you learn in a healthy way to feel it and release it, feel it and release it, and have parents who love you enough to know that that whole thing is part of a lesson, doing well and not well are, are, are equally parts of important lessons for life, then he's going to be just fine, right? So we're so afraid, I think, as parents, and it's, it's a new shift in the last 25 years, probably. Like our parents, I don't know whether they didn't feel it as much, but it was a completely different time. It was like, ah, suck it up. You'll be fine, right? It was, yeah. it was very different. And now we're sort of all terrified that our kids get upset and we're calling the teacher when the kids aren't in the, cl- the right and their friends aren't in their class and we're c- blaming everyone else and we're, we're rescuing, rescuing, rescuing constantly. But what we're actually doing is creating a generation of kids, and I'm seeing them now in their 20s, who have no emotional resilience. There's no thick skin. There's no ability to handle trouble when it comes. And guess what? Trouble always comes, always, in some form or another. They're not picked for a team. Somebody breaks up with them. They don't get invited to something. They work, they work hard for something and they don't get it. That's just part of life. So is the success. But wh- where we really give our children the gift is to be able to understand that they're loved no matter what, and that life is full of lessons, and that you believe they've got the internal strength to handle it all. And that's the real gift.
3: Yeah. I love what you said. Feel it and release it. Mm-hmm. And that's true for all of us. Just
0: the fact that, look, when I was a kid growing up, I thought that my emotions could kill me. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot sure. of people feel that. And you're never taught that, you know, your emotions, you are not your emotions and you are not your thoughts. Yeah. Just to know that, just to be told that, just to experience that, your emotions will come and go. Your thoughts will come and go. You can make choices about it, but you are not them and they are not you. My whole childhood would have been a lot different. I'm glad that it wasn't because it brought me to a different place. But still, this is, you know, emotions, as Jennifer always says, is information Mm -hmm. and they're a response to what you're, how you, what thoughts you're Mm -hmm. focusing on. You have certain thoughts, you think that they have meaning, and then you have feelings about it. So that's what this show is, you know, that's what we're trying to be about is, is that it's how you relate to your thoughts and feelings. That's what mental mm-hmm. health is, how you relate to your thoughts yeah. and feelings.
2: Well, and the other piece, when I'm working with kids and with parents, it's the it's the feel and release for sure, but it's also valuing contrast. We're so terrified of of things not going right, but you have to have a whole bunch of things not go right in order for things to go right. (laughs) That's just how life works, right? By the
3: way, that's another baseball thing is like every strikeout is getting you closer to a hit. Now you've seen more pitches.
2: Exactly. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't suck when it happens. It does. And it's okay. It's okay to lean into that, you know, let yourself feel it. Just don't stay there. Then value that contrast and know that those con the contrast and the contours in life are actually incredibly important in order to feel happiness and in order to have success. And when we come from that place as parents, our children will feel that confidence from us. Right. If we start crying and, and being devastated that they, you know, didn't make a team and why, well, you know, what's the matter with you? And are you okay? And we have all that friend, which by the way, Teresa, you did not have, but a lot of us can do that with our kids then that piece of parenting, that parenting moment is coming from a place of fear and it will never be helpful, right? When it comes from a place of love, buddy, that you did your best and that sucked and it's okay to just feel crappy about it. Do you want a hug? You know what it does? It feels shitty, I get it. But you know what? After they, after they let themselves feel that, then you can do the other part, which is, but you know what? You did have an amazing play. Let's talk about that for a minute. And also giving them the messages of confidence that I see you. I know you'll get through this. Because the truth is, no matter how awful that was and no matter how teary he was in the car, honestly, a year from now, he's not going to remember that. Maybe six months from now, he's not going to remember. He might not even remember it two weeks from now. It won't have the same impact, right? He will have moved through it. And,
3: and, and per your comment about the value of contours and having hills and valleys, when I look back on times when he was younger and had, you know, just games that didn't go his way, strikeouts, times he, like, you know, really struggled pitching. I can directly see that truly was a learning experience. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that – or, you know, he, play, he plays basketball. Like, oh, remember that time you were on that team and every, and you were the youngest one and, yeah. and and everybody was so much better than you and you, you had a chance to win the game with a free throw and you missed it? Like, I can directly see, oh, my gosh, you got so much tougher and better after that.
2: And that's life. That's a metaphor for life. It really is. And so when we try to protect our kids from that, we're actually, and not that you tried to protect him from it, but when we parent in this way that we're trying to protect our children from their feelings or from any kind of natural, healthy adversity, we're actually damaging our kids because it's those negative experiences that actually build the neural pathways in the brain to handle Trouble. The hardware has to be there. If if you fix every problem, then when they're 25 and they have a big problem, they have no neurological hardware. They have no hardware in their brain to handle disappointment, failure, all of the things that, that they can be experiencing. This is really important parenting that we have to understand. We are loving our children deeply by letting them experience and recover from and learn from healthy adversity.
0: And we're parenting ourselves, and that's self-parenting. And you're not doing anything with them that you're not doing with yourself. And you often hear people say, well, parenting is so, it's so exhausting. (laughs) You know what's exhausting? Trying to fix things. Yeah. That's exhausting. You know, and I'm, listen, there's no no bigger fixer than me. I am, uh, you know, I'm the fixer-upper. I'm constantly trying, my impulse is to fix, and often I have a very difficult, that's my immediate reaction. What's wrong? What happened? what's going on. And so that's exhausting. That's fight or flight. So we're learning, you know, we're learning it. And Teresa, I will never call you mother <laughs> Teresa, but what I will By say. Way, that, was, is, that was the it,
3: name of my ABC pilot. Oh, <laughs> yeah, never oh
0: God. Never that is what, what a great Thanks. title. And I will, I'm sure it was a great pilot too, but I will, I will always say that you are, you're a very conscious mom. Yeah and a great mom. And I can just tell.
2: Oh, you can feel that the way you told the story and that's going to shine through, right? That's always going to be what your son experiences for sure.
3: Yeah. Important takeaway is that the year that mother Teresa, my pilot did not go, the ABC pilot that did go took place in a veterinarian's office and it featured talking animals.
0: Listen, you just can't do it. Because it's out of your control, right? These are You want to talk about things that are out of your control. Whoa. Pilot season. Those are things that are out of your control.
3: Uh, by the way, I don't know if you know, because there aren't enough podcasts in the world. Current Adam Carolla Newsgirl, uh, Gina Grad, and I, former Adam Carolla Newsgirl, do a podcast together. It's sort of like Pod Soup. We talk about our favorite podcasts, and it is called Easy Listening with Gina Grad and Teresa Strasser.
2: Love it.
0: Well, I think that's fantastic because I'm going to listen to that immediately because I know Gina Grad and I was doing Mark in the Morning, yeah. uh, Mark Thompson's show. And so I remember her, you know, I know she's done stuff for years. That is a great show. That is something that everybody should listen to. And you can hear it everywhere, everywhere. right?
3: Everywhere. It's on iTunes. Just search up Easy Listening with Gina Grad and Teresa Straw. So it should be there.
0: That's a show I really want to listen to. You, Both of you guys are so talented, my God. Well, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on. It's so great to connect with you. And please, please, you'll come on again, okay?
3: Oh my gosh, I would love this. Jennifer, you're, you're obviously an amazing therapist. And I, thank you like this coming from a Jewish girl that's probably had like dozens of therapists of like from CBT to MB. I mean, every kind, like you're, you're obviously amazing. And Ed Ed Krasnick, a mensch, (laughs) uh, a mensch (laughs) from day one, you opened a door for me. You didn't have to do that. And you did. And I've been working ever since. So thank you.
0: What a pleasure. I'm so, I'm so happy to talk to you and really, but listen in baseball, you're hitting 300, you're a Hall of Famer. That is such a sports metaphor. I love the new book that you're going to have. That's, that's a, Baseball is such a wonderful metaphor for living and for, uh, and for dealing with stuff. And I just want to tell everybody that uh, the Mental Health Comedy Podcast, you know, you can hear us everywhere. And we're now on Amazon Music. So you can hear us there too. And uh, find us on the social pages. Find Teresa Strasser at TeresaStrasser.com. Listen, and that's Teresa, T-E-R-E-S-A, similar to Mother Teresa, but not exactly the same, maybe not exactly the same smelling, spelling or smelling. Um, and then look for Easy Listening with Teresa Strasser and Gina Grad, two very talented people. Thank you for listening to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. Keep coming back at works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari and Teresa Strasser. Take care and we'll see you next time.